and welcome to Series 3 of Autism in Conversation with Auticon, a podcast from Auticon, a global IT consultancy whose consultants are all autistic. This series is designed to help raise greater understanding and appreciation of autism through fascinating conversations with inspirational guests. Hosted by me, Carrie Grant, each episode will feature fantastic guests from all walks of life who share a passion for making the world more inclusive. We'll be talking about the many benefits of hiring neurodivergent talent through to some of the more common challenges faced by autistic adults navigating the workplace, plus much, much more. All of my four children are neurodivergent, yay! So this is a subject very close to my heart. I'm really looking forward to facilitating some great conversations about autism and hopefully learning some new things along the way. I hope you enjoy it too. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Autism in Conversation with Auticon. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is that I get to hear from so many people who are doing really brilliant things, whether it's someone from the autistic community who is making great strides in their industry or someone who's providing support to make lives better for autistic people. I'm delighted to say that this episode focuses on both of those uh, groups of people. Specifically, we're going to be looking at what can happen when autistic Autistic people are given the right support in the workplace, either in the form of a mentor or dedicated support person who is able to advocate for them, if that's what they need. Joined by my panel, in this episode, we'll be celebrating great examples of mentorship and advocacy to provide advice and inspiration for those looking to make their workplace more inclusive and accessible for neurodivergent talent. With me today are Lee Hutchison, job coach at Auticon, Dan Jones, entrepreneur and founder of The Aspie World, Liz Moore, data strategy, engineering and governance leader, micro-sculptor Willard Wiggin, MBE, and his manager and mentor, John Bowden. Welcome, everybody. It's great having such a big crowd of people here. Now, first up, I thought it would be good just to get a little bit of a flavour of, of each of you. Dan, can you tell us about uh, when you were diagnosed as autistic and uh, tell us about the Aspie world? Yeah, of course. Um, so I was actually diagnosed officially um, with Asperger's syndrome. I have had an updated one since, which is now just ASD level two or one. I can't remember which one it was, but um, so originally it was Asperger's syndrome in, in 2013 and I was 26 at the time. But before that, I'd had kind of numerous diagnoses leading up to that time. And so it was a little bit of a, a struggle to get to that point because of where I live in Wales was typically quite rural. Um, which is where the, the struggles came in. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was 26 years old and that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks actually, because, um, you know, I've got my whole life thinking I was quite an odd ball and a bit weird. Um, and then I get this diagnosis, something I knew nothing about. Um, so I decided then to do a bit of Googling and, and a bit of YouTube and to, to find out, you know, cause I'm, I'm very, very visual at how I learn. So I wanted to watch videos and there was nothing on YouTube about autism or, or Asperger's syndrome, nothing visual anyway. And I thought, oh, goodness. So I decided to, I thought, look, I've had 26 years of, you know, surviving, you know, and I, I seem to be doing okay at that point. And I thought, look, maybe I've got value to offer people. So I thought, I'll just check it all online, make a video or two and just check it up. Maybe it'll help somebody. And that's kind of how I got started. That really is the the, the starting point there back in 2013. And just give us some sense of scale. What What is the reach of the Aspie world today? Wow. Um, so we, I mean, it's, it's, 
yeah, it's hundreds of thousands. I mean, we have 200,000 subscribers on the YouTube channel. Um, we hit 150,000 followers on Facebook, 36,000 on Instagram, and we're just about to hit 20,000 on TikTok because it was only something we picked up last month. But I know what wow. we're doing. I know. So there's clearly um, but, there's clearly a demand out there for it, Dan. That's that's amazing. Yeah, you know, it, yeah, because it's it's not just kind of like um, that. It, it's not vanity, you know. Like do, people think of YouTubers and stuff like think a lot about vanity, but it's not about vanity. It's about adding value, helping to change people's lives, and really trying to hold their hand when they need it. And also, I love to be that shoulder for the parents to cry on and help them. You know, like that's one of the biggest things because parents have like such a hard time, especially when they have like newly diagnosed kids. So, I yeah. just try my best. You know, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I love your mentoring heart. Let's go to Willard. Now, we, we've we heard from you a little bit on our podcast here, uh, on this podcast, but, you know, you're absolutely incredible. You're a micro-sculptor and you create the world's, I mean, tiniest, the word tiny doesn't even feel small enough. I mean, it's teeny tiny, wincy teeny tiny art. Um, was that already your work and your profession when you were diagnosed as autistic? Well, yes. You know, I, when I was diagnosed, I... I mean, I knew something was wrong with me because I kept making small things. <laughs> so, even my breakfast was small. <laughs> not, I, I, not as small as your art, I hope. Yeah. But on a serious note, it, 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 this compulsive, repetitive, obsessive, possessed behaviour of making small sculptures, um, due to the fact that I, I struggled academically and, and nothing else mattered other than what I was making, because, you know, like I said, in previous uh, interviews, I, my my life, it's almost as though nothing else mattered. So, it, so because I, I was making these microscopic sculptures, because I was told that I wasn't any good academically, I was told by the school teachers that I'm the consequence of failure and everything else. So, so once once I heard that, um, my whole world fell apart. So that, well, it didn't fall apart. It, it just fell into tiny little bits, you know, and all those little tiny bits turned into the biggest thing that ever happened to me in my life because I was, I, I, I concentrated on things that you couldn't see. So, I, yeah. you know, when my dog destroyed the ant's nest in the garden, I used to think all the ants, you know, could speak. I used to believe that ants were like us in their own little world. They used to have little conversations. A queen ant lived in a palace. So I, I, when I saw that the, the ant's nest destroyed, I, I, once I found my dad's razor blade, broke a little piece off, I started cutting up little splinters of wood and building a little empire for ants. I built a village for ants. He made a, a palace for the queen ant out of a leaf. When a leaf dies and it twirls, I cut out the large windows. and so they're Like ice cream combs, when a leaf dies, sometimes they twirl. And I got four tiny little leaves and pushed some splinters through them, cut out little large windows and... On a piece of cardboard, I punched all these little holes in and, sort of, and put splinters in and wedged all the little pieces in between, you see. So what I was doing, I was cutting little grooves and pushing the splinters of wood together their own friction, pulling out some of my school uniform, which I enjoyed, and then <laughs> tying little knots. And, you know, I didn't think it was a talent. I didn't so, think and, it was and anything. And at no point did anyone think you might be neurodivergent, you you, well, you were autistic? Back in 1962, 63, around that, it, it wasn't diagnosed, you know. It was like you'd have a done sat on your head. You were, mm. you know, exhibited as failure. Yeah. So once, once you hear that word failure, then it's all over, more or less. Gosh. But but academic-wise, yes, but not... Your you as a person, 
Uh, see, I, I, I just lost me in school. Yeah. But when I was out of school, I found me. Yeah. Do you know what? It's really interesting because so often we sort of complain about how far we've still got to go on all of the understanding of autism and neurodivergence generally. But when you talk about those days, there was really, really nothing. And it makes you realise, you know, we've got a way to go, but we've we've come a long way. Let's go over to John because... Um, now, you work with Willard uh, and, uh, and you support Willard, I've, I've got written here, but how did you first come to work with Willard? <laughs> uh, that would be by a complete happy accident, as it'd be known in the art yeah, world. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> we, we were both in a pub in the Cotswolds in a place where we shouldn't have been. I shouldn't have been there. Um, Willard shouldn't have been there. And uh, we bumped into each other in the pub and uh, sat down, talked to each other. And from the moment we started talking to each other, it was clear that we both knew people with each other that were known to each other. And even me and Willard were known to each other, but wow. didn't actually know each other. <laughs> yeah. but, but we were known to each other. And I sat there and he was telling me, um, he said, do you know who I am? And I was like, well, no. He said, oh, I've got this like, little exhibition going on over the road, would you like to have a look? I said, what's it all about? He said, I'm the guy that makes things on the heads of pins. I said... I know you. <laughs> you made a sculpture of a friend of mine whose brother had died and you made a sculpture for him maybe 15 years ago. He was like, yeah, that's me. And um, someone I employed at the time was um, was also connected to Willard. So we was talking and Willard kind of disclosed in conversation that he said, I'm, I'm at the point of giving up uh, public art is that it, it, it it's brought me heartache and pain mm. um, and I'm just going to do it just for me yeah. because I'm a bit fed up it's of it often and I, the case yeah, yeah and I said well why and he just said well and he started telling me his story of uh, not just from his school life but how um, his working life had changed uh, and I sat there and thought wow this would be such a shame for him not to be seen so we just started talking together and he put something in front of me and said, what do you think to that? I said, I don't think that's so good. And he said, do you think you could do better? And I said, yes. And four or five days later, I presented Willard with a whole new gallery brochure for him to look at and he was like, wow. Um, and our relationship began. But I never began as Willard's manager. I started as his, um, what just turned out to be his friend and someone that would listen and someone that he was talking to. And gradually Willard... Um, found trust in me uh, and then started asking me would you look at this or would you look at that you know I, I could do someone helping with this could you look at that and I just started yeah. looking at those things um, and then one day I got given the lofty title of manager <laughs> <laughs> See, basically it was, it was a synchronisation you see because yeah. I had other people that were managing me but they were managing for the wrong reason they just wanted to make money yeah of course you know and, and that was horrible because yes you know they took advantage of me financially some people did but um when John came along, John could see something I couldn't see within myself yeah. and helped me to bring out more of me. Mm. So John encouraged me to, to not just talk about my work, but to talk about me. Yeah. So and, and the why and why I do what I do. And I do what I do for, for a simple answer is a reason, mm. you know. And the reason is is that it's it's a world that people disregard. They can't see something. Just because yeah. you can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah. And my microscopic art has shocked the world. Mm. Shocked the world. Mm. Because people are seeing something in so much detail but so microscopic mm. 
that it's it adds value to it. It's like it's like giving someone a, a grain of sand, mm. and once they hold a grain of sand in their hand, they'll just go, "What do you give me a grain of sand for?" And you say, yeah. "Come here." And you put the grain of sand underneath the microscope, and then you see a polar bear standing on the top. Yeah. And then their jaws end up in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> see? Oh, yeah, of course they do. <laughs> because yeah. when you've been Doing it for so long. I mean, I've been doing it from 1962. I mean, I'm, I'm now 65. I used to hang out with Moses. That's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but, but, but what it is, um, the, the tenacity of me has made me who I am today, the world's greatest micro artist. You know, I've broken two world records, sculptured a motorbike inside a hair, smaller than any, any machine. No nano can, nanotechnology can beat me because I've already seen what I've done and they can't explain it. They wanted to sort of collaborate with me and understand how can my dexterity do that. Now, I realise that autism gave me that ability. It's like an ex extremity. I have to... You see, sometimes it's like you feel as though you do it because your life depends upon it mm. or you're working to save somebody's life. When I'm, when I'm mm. making a sculpture, I think... I'm performing a, an operation that's critical to their life. So, you know, I'll sit there for 16 hours a day, you know. So if I make a motorbike inside a hair, I'll put the, the spokes on the motorbike, the axle, the handlebars, yeah. the headlights, the seats, everything. And then when I've done it, I say to myself, it's not good enough. Even though it's blown scientists away, I say, no, that ain't it. That's not me, because I can go even better. And the good thing is, you know, John sees my work and he says, Willard, you know, my mum used to say the small you work, the bigger name. But John would say to me, Willard, you know, when you make your work, right, the presentation of your work is important. Mm. And, and what you say is important. Mm. And what you do is already important because it's blowing my head off. So I had to get John's head out the ceiling a couple of times. You know, what <laughs> I love about this is already, and we will come to Lee in just a moment, but... What I'm hearing already, because, you know, we're talking about mentorship here. Will I just use a phrase, John, there? He saw something within me that I couldn't see within myself. What's interesting is um, when I first met Willard, um, you say, you know, this podcast is about mentorship. What's interesting is, is when I first met Willard, I believe that I do believe the universe puts people in the right place at the right time for the right reasons. Uh, and me and Willard met for a reason, and part of that reason is we're sat here today. But I thought I was brought into Willard's life in some way to help him, and I think he's actually mentored me because he's made me see things in me that I didn't yeah. see. Yeah. And, you know, what Willard was was um, a written book, um, and Willard struggles with reading and writing. It's not that he can't do it, he just struggles with it because he learns differently. Mm -hmm. And all I've done is shown him that it's actually an audio and video book. Mm -hmm. It's not something to be read. Mm. And if you try and read Willard, he's not a book. Yeah. He's visual, yeah. you know, and he's creative. And he's got a light. And I think to get the best from what Willard, from what needs to be seen from Willard, is all I help him do is shine that light in the right direction. Which is, I guess, within the arts, we need managers that can do that generally anyway. But you're talking plus plus aren't you there which is wonderful let's get over to lee now lee you work for auticon so so tell us uh can you sum up in a nutshell what what auticon is for people that may not know 
I'd love to hear more from Willard. <laughs> but yeah, for, uh, for us, Autocon, we're an international social enterprise. So we provide tech consultancy and Euro inclusion services to clients sort of across the industry, service sectors, and ex- we exclusively employ professional consultants that are on the autistic spectrum. So very much our kind of core mission is to promote sort of neurodiversity and significantly improve the employment prospects of autistic adults through um, by delivering kind of high quality, long-term careers for skilled autistic adults. That's incredible. And last but not least, Liz, uh, can you explain what your role is, please, and how you came to know about Auticon? Yep. So in uh, spending the last 20 so years in technology and data, um, I've been helping to mentor people, especially being a woman in technology and seeing um, how we've had to navigate that space over the years and mentoring other people through that as I grew as a leader. Uh, it kind of opened up my eyes to, um, you know, what it, what is really needed uh, outside of the technology space in mentorship. And so in 2019, we met Oticon through a regional development group uh, who was looking for a way to expand um the type of people we were bringing in and employing across uh, our, our city uh, and making sure that we were attracting all of the top talent. Uh, so we were introduced to Otacon. We learned about the mission, uh, and it was a perfect fit for us to get involved. Um, I, at the time, was working for a very forward-thinking startup company who was looking to establish themselves uh, and do so very much with a mission of uh, empowering people. So we uh, volunteered to be one of the first companies in the region to bring Autocon consultants into it. And as a leader in a technology role, I think the team recognized that I would be very comfortable navigating that space uh, and understanding what it would be like to bring in these consultants specifically and help them thrive in our environment as a startup company. Now let's move on to looking at what we mean by mentorship and why it's so important to help autistic people to thrive. Now I want to put in almost immediately because of something John said, which was so right. You said, you know, and Willard has taught me stuff. When we talk about mentorship, we're not just talking about, oh, there are some needy people and then, you know, the neurotypicals come along and help them. We're talking about two-way relationships. Good mentorship is actually about collaboration and is about relationships. So I just want to say that ahead of anything we we say from here on in. Um, What are some of the challenges that autistic people face that specifically benefit from from having a mentor, mentorship and advocacy. Uh, Let's go to Dan first with that. So in terms of like, you know, when you're an autistic person in a, in a workplace or in in an education environment, it could be anywhere really when you're trying to absorb something and then um, use those things practically. You're you're against uh, uh, challenges like executive dysfunction, um, social interaction, um, short-term memory loss, lots of different things. Now, you know, if, if you were just left on your own, like many autistic people are um, a lot of the time, um, you will kind of like you won't be able to progress any further with the typical tools you've been given. But when you have a mentor who's advocating for you and your kind of needs, what happens is if it's a good mentor, they will teach you things, not just show you things. Right. And you learn from them as a mentor, as a, as a supplement um, educator and that, those skills and those tips and those tricks that you learn are the things that will stay with you for the rest of your life. So it's it's vitally important that you know you you have someone who is who can walk the walk and talk the talk, so that you learn 
you know, and not just kind of do because they say, oh, just do this and it'll sort it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you mentioned earlier uh, on the Aspie world about being in touch with parents, of course, some of whom will be autistic, but many won't be. And you're actually mentoring them, though, aren't you, in, in, in that respect? That's a two, again, it's what I'm saying about the two-way yeah. system. Yeah, absolutely. Just like anything else, you know, um, it's a it's a kind of uh, forget about you know what came first, chicken or the egg. You know, one can exist without the other. So we have to have this kind of fluid um, ideology and think about it in a way where you know the the parent has to really absorb uh, the stuff from the kid, but the kid is only there because of the parent. So it's kind of like they're already halfway doing the job. It's so it's so interesting and and, and fascinating when I when I'm coaching parents um, because they they always, they already think that they're doing a bad job. Every parent yeah. thinks, oh, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough. And I say, look, you showed up right now. Yeah. You're doing enough. You realize that, and they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." So it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like parents get the get the brunt of it as well. Yeah, I, and and this mentoring does work both both ways, as as both you and John have said, Willard. I know in conversations I've had with you previously, I know how much you value that kind of older generation that mentor. You talk about your mum a lot, um, but for you, what does John? bring to you in terms of does he advocate for you what 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 areas is he covering for you well you see even though obviously don doesn't do what i do but he does what i do in a different way okay. in what he says so john will say something to me and make me see something i like i said i didn't see so john has mentored me in for a fact it sorry as a matter of fact, John would say to me, Willard, when you exhibit your work, right, and people see it, don't you think they need to see something else? And I say, what, like what? And he says, take away the needle and then just do the sculpture itself without the needle. And I say, well, no one will see the scale of it. Said, well, they will when they look down the microscope. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so, I decided to make a, a, a bird in a net, two birds uh, on a nest with five eggs in the nest, wow. and two birds perched on a branch with leaves on the branch. So, when you look down at the base of the microscope where the exhibit is, you see a, a speck twice as small as a full stop. So you see this tiny dot that you can hardly see. So you see no needle when you look through the microscope. There it is in all its glory. Wow. And then people look down again and look at, through the microscope again and they say, there's nothing there. So there's no needle there, but the sculpture's there. And John says, call it the speck. So that's it. where he mentored me yeah. in changing the way I uh, do some of my work. I love that. So he'll say, don't do the needle, just do the sculpture itself. Yeah. So I'll do a combination of the speck and the needles so yeah. you can see the scale. And I've seen both of those. That's great. So you're, you're, but that's creative thinking, that you're mentoring in a creative way there, John, yeah? Yeah, I think we, um, we mentor each other. We talk um, a lot between us and we'll talk at sort of different times of the day or night. Um, we learn from each other and, um, you know, I've listened to some of the podcasts and I think people have got a fear of autism and people are frightened of it. Mm. And we generally frighten of things that we don't understand. Yeah. You know, and I think from Willard's perspective is 
he just learns differently. Yeah. He's not stupid. He's not Clearly. he's not any of those things yeah. that are stereotypical of what people consider to be or what teachers have told him he would be. Yeah. What they fail to harness is just that he learns in a different way and he understands how he connects that differently. Mm. And once you do understand that, then actually you've got someone that struggles with reading or writing but is actually incredibly well read. You know, So Willard knows an awful lot about an awful lot yeah. but has never read a thing in his life. Yeah. You know, So there's a lot of skills to Willard that are outside of his sculpting ability. And what I became interested in is, in the past, for many years, people have always concentrated on what Willard does, but not why he does it. And I think it's far more important why he does it, mm. because what he does is a result of his why. Yeah. And his why is actually more powerful. Yeah, it's very and powerful. And once people buy into the why, the what becomes so much more relevant. That's so important. You're talking about narrative there. Yeah. Someone's narrative is so important. Lee, how important is mentorship in the work that you do? And and our um, autistic clients that, that work out of Autocon, that come from Autocon, how much are they reliant on that mentorship? I think at the, the kind of the start of sort of any role, project, or like working with a new team, I think it's really helpful to have a, a mentor and so someone to kind of you know, I can only be there so much of the time, but, you know, I'm not a technical person. I might not be working on a project with someone. And it's about people working with someone and getting that time sort of during that induction period, that kind of formative months to kind of help boost that person's confidence by sort of having someone who can kind of talk through the task, you know, the work at hand, someone who can give that really consistent sort of feedback about what's going well, equally where something can maybe be worked upon or some constructive feedback. And, I think it really helps on that sort of one-to-one level to help someone build up like that professional kind of relationship with a co-worker to learn from kind of firsthand about sort of that company culture. I mean, it's one of the, the most challenging thing, I think, for, for people going into a workplace is there are so many unwritten rules or ways of behaving, talking, interacting within a workplace, especially within large organizations. And having someone that can articulate those can be so important to help someone navigate those kind of first few months as well. And for you, Liz, um, could you just talk me through what mentorship looks like for you? It's really interesting. Um, as I think about my prior to autism uh, version of mentorship, very focused on growing the employees, specifically working with women in technology. And when we started to bring the Autosans consultants on, I think one of the things that resonated with us very specifically is something you hear people at Autocon say a lot, if you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. So I think that kind of opened my mind and my team's mind on this concept that um, mentorship is very individualized and not everybody needs the same exact features of mentorship. And I learned that and saw that play out as we brought on uh, many consultants from Otacon. And each one of them was unique. They brought different skills and they needed different things. And it was just a really interesting way to kind of look at uh, what does it look like to be a good servant leader to an employee to help grow an employee. Um, And what we found is they don't need anything differently than our other employees. Um, I think really it's just working with Autocom has brought that real awareness back to some very basic principles, which is communications 
and um, really getting to know the person and asking the person, what do you need to be successful and listening to that and understanding how to respond to that. I want to touch on advocacy a little bit because I think that school can be so difficult for many of us, uh, particularly our, our autistic community, that if the narrative has been, oh, it's too much, you're asking for too much, what we're teaching our young people is don't ask, you're too fussy, you're too much, you need too much, you're asking for too much. It doesn't really help when those young children then grow up to be adults going into the workplace to be able to advocate for themselves and feel autonomy about themselves and be, be able to ask, show up as themselves and ask for help. Um, maybe this is one for you, Dan. Um, how do we help people to grow in their advocacy skills, self-advocacy skills? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. You know, um, in terms of, um, and I love what you were saying then about the school because um, it all stems from de demand, right? And because the more demands that someone has, the more avoidance they will create. And what you're saying is that that, that creates a trauma and then they will be with them for the rest of their life, which yep. is where we have pathological demand avoidance, right? And how do you cope with demands? Well, the, the opposite to that is self um, confidence and motivation. So how do you, how do you grow that? So the answer really is, and self-advocacy really comes from self-confidence and self-confidence comes from self-awareness. Who is one? Who am I? What do I do? And this comes from very simple practices of, I feel like today there's too many things. I've used too many spoons. I don't know if you're familiar with the spoon theory. And I'm going to just light a candle. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch maybe my favorite, you know, anime movie. And that's it. That's all I'm going to do today. That will build self-confidence because you're allowing yourself to be you and this will grow you as a person. And a lot of people don't do this because they have this, um, uh, they have this, they have too many demands in their life that they get programmed to think that they can't do those things because they'll be classed as being lazy. You're wasting your time. This yeah. is not something that's productive, you know, and then you get into imposter syndrome thinking I should be doing something else. And it's a whole kind of like spiral, but just say, okay, for once, I'm going to just take a step back. I'm going to do what I feel is right at this moment in terms of what's good for me. And honestly, the more that someone implements that, the more confidence, the more motivated they'll be, and the less that the demands on life will, will, will really impair their ability to be, you know. That's a great answer. For you, Willard, just having spoken to you a few times now, I get the impression that you, when you speak about the little girl, the neighbour that looks over the fence and she says, that's the bestest. And you talk about how that changed you. Do you feel now that you are always able to show up as yourself? Obviously, your art has given you a freedom in a way, but are there still limitations? Are there still times where you're like, I'm just not enough? Do you, well, do you go well, through that? I look at it this way. If, if I make a mistake in my life, or if I do something that's not right, I'll welcome it. Give me the mistake. And I'll shake hands with the mistake, because the mistake is what I learned from. I learn from, you know, we have mishaps, things not quite right. And I have to see more in front than what I left behind. So I have to always accept that, some, that things are not going to always work out in life sometimes. Not just in my work. So in life, I think we all have to, you know, there's ups and downs. And, you know, lows and, and highs and, and, you know, so I think all that happens for a reason. It's what you do with it. It's not what it, what, what it, what it, what happens to you. It's what you do with it. Yeah. What is it? Rocky says something like that. 
if you get knocked down in a boxing match, it's not what you do when you get knocked down. It's what you do when you get back up. Yeah. And Tyson Fury proved that. Mm. You know, you get knocked down, you get back up. Mm. And it's it's good to get knocked down a little bit sometimes because that's how you learn. Yeah. I think something, um, yeah. Some, something yeah. important, Carrie, I think is, um, is you know, don't let labels define you because just because someone gives you a label doesn't mean that's how you have to turn out to be. And I think that's the one thing I've learned from Willard. He was labelled and has been labelled for a very long time, but it's not who he really is. Mm. That label he was given isn't really Willard. And I think if I... Can I just clarify what you mean by label? Uh, well, a label from a point of view, Willard was told that he would, um, you know, he would turn out to nothing, be nothing, Oh, the negative, nothing. yes, yeah, sorry, so, yes, the negative so his, labels. So he's kind of, you know, he was given a label. And if you label someone for long enough, as it did with Willard, yeah. They believe it. Of course. So if we label our young people with whatever label we give them, mm. you know, if you tell a child that might have a learning difference, that they're disruptive, that they're a pain in the backside, and you tell them for long enough, mm. that's all they will believe. Yeah. You know, so, and that's and that's no different to what happened to, to Willard. So I think, you know, something Willard has, has certainly taught me is that the the label that someone else gives you is not necessarily something that has to define you. No, 100% right. You know. and, and, John, do you ever have to advocate for Willard? Do you find yourself advocating for Willard? Are there moments where that's necessary at this point? Um, I tend to find that I'm more of Willard's sort of... Um, I'm like a bit of an empathy channel for, for Willard. It's wrong to say that, because people say people with autism don't have empathy. That's not true. I think people with autism have a different understanding of empathy and teach and have it mm. differently to how I, I see it. So I don't necessarily advocate for Willard, but I'll certainly, we'll discuss things together that, you know, we'll discuss things, he'll, he'll talk about something, how he's feeling about something, which is how he's wired to feel about it. And I'll talk to him about something about how I'm wired to feel about it. And somewhere in between that will be the path that we'll take that combines both of those together, which will actually get the outcome that, that we need. I love that. You know, so it's... Um, and, and I don't think that's different from anyone because we're all wired differently. We're all individual. Every one of us is individually. Um, and I've met, you know, I've met lots of neurodiverse people um, since coming into contact with, uh, with Willard. And I would say that, you know, the main thing that people need to understand is that it's just a different way of learning. Yeah. That is all. And if it's teachers yeah. if teachers recognise that, if you give, if I give Willard or someone gives Willard 12 things to do, you, you look at a standard study day of eight lessons in a day, for instance, you give someone with autism eight things to do in a day, it's really different, difficult to concentrate. If yeah. I ask Willard to do one thing in a day and concentrate really well, he's yeah. absolutely brilliant at it. So I think it, it, it's so working it's learning with that. Difference, that. Isn't yeah, it? working yeah. with that. And if Willard's got a dozen things to do, he himself becomes confused. Here's, here's an example. When I when I received my doctorate, and I got my honorary doctorate, I felt like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz mm. that gave me a brain. You know, mm. it, it's an honorary doctorate. I didn't have any qualifications to receive it. I'm just, I was honoured for the for my services, my skills. So. Once I had that doctorate, I had that scroll in my hand, I've got the whole world in my hand at the same time. Yeah. Because I now know that little things really do mean a lot. When you belittle people, right, sometimes because you belittle them, right, it's like David and Goliath, you see. David turns up, you know, and, and if you look down upon people too much, sometimes the very person you look down upon 
you end up looking upon. Mm. Yeah, very, very good point. And, and I love what you said there, there, John, about it is about that difference, isn't it? Dan, if I could come back to you. Um, now, you're working with a, a team of autistic people. You employ a team of autistic people. Um, yeah. How, how are you finding that? What what, are the, what is it like ha- handling teams of people and, and the sort of issues that they may have that you may you may have to uh, mentor them or help them help them with? Sure. So um, yeah, it, I mean it is it has its challenges, obviously because we're all we're all kind of you know we have all our own issues, and um, there's a few things you know we implemented uh, a few things that work really well. Um, one is. Um, we do a uh, virtual reality implementation. So we all use, uh, so when, when anybody comes to work for me, I buy them a, an Oculus or a MetaQuest kit, which is a virtual reality headset, and we log into something called Workrooms. And so it's like a virtual environment where they can be anybody they want, they can do any avatar they want, you know. And what this allows for is we can have teams working together in a virtual environment without the pressure of actually showing up and being yourself, um, you know, if, if you don't feel like it that yeah. day, you know, it's kind of like working from home, but with, uh, you can put any kind of picture on. And that worked really well because it allowed the person more freedom um, to kind of express themselves in a way, you know, and I think that worked really well. The other thing was, um, we have a, um, a body doubling uh, program. So basically when... Um, so uh, our team, uh, basically our team is a team leader called Alyssa. So if Alyssa wants to get a lot of work done, she'll team up with one of the other people and they may sit on Zoom and just sit there, you know, working, body doubling together, which is really, really good. But, but the other thing is we implemented on our Notion page, which is what we use for, for, our, for our team, is um, a well-being um, open forum. So, you know, if... Um, Steph in Glasgow, for instance, she, she'll be like, look, I'm having a terrible week. I'm not feeling great. And I go, Steph, just take the, you know, take the, do, do what you need to do this week, you know, because at the end of the day, as long as, as long as our, as long as our bits and pieces get done, like I'm happy, you know, it doesn't have to be all done throughout one month. It could be done within one day that month, as long as it's done. So it's kind of like having an understanding and being approachable mm. and being very transparent with, with the team. And, and that really does um, create really good team morale. That's wonderful. And what I'm hearing from both John and from you, Dan, is uh, working with autistic people, other autistic people. So looking at the way that you work, Dan, we're looking at those adjustments that your staff might need. John has spoken about the differences that Willard may have in in terms of views and just, you know, and how they work together. Um, It is quite out there, though, Lee, what what Dan has just said there, you know, so I'd like to turn up on a Teams meeting, but I'd like to turn up as an anime character. That is working so well in the Aspie world. That is working for that company brilliantly. How far are companies prepared to go in terms of that difference? Are they prepared to accommodate at that level? I'm kind of feeling like they should be, uh, but I'm also feeling like we've probably got a long way to go before that kind of thing could happen in, in your normal regular companies who aren't used to doing it. It's a, tr- it's a tricky one. It's it's not, I've experienced, I, th- I always say with my job is that you prepare for the unexpected. You know, everyone is such a unique individual that that comes with their own goals, ambitions, but worries and challenges and, you know, requests. And, you know, if, if someone asked me that we would talk it through, you know, what's the, what, what, what's the case that we could pitch to an employer that you would like to be seen perhaps as, as an anime character? And, you know, maybe you take it to, to the employer and explain. And, you know, I've, I've often found that 
people are generally quite understanding and can be flexible. I mean, you know, it's just ultimately maybe like it might be something that someone goes, okay, you know what, for our weekly, maybe morning stand-up calls, you can have this perhaps anime character as, as an avatar. But maybe if we have this contact perhaps with like a, a larger employer or the CEO, maybe we would maybe sort of move away from that. You just never know. Sometimes there is an element of kind of slight negotiation to to this and and that would be, you know, some of the people I work with would be more than quite happy with something like that. So, you know, it's it's all about just making sort of that case and, you know, hoping people kind of understand and are flexible and, you know, people can can surprise you as, as well. Thank you. And and for you, Liz, avatars in meetings, how, how would that work for your, your people? Yeah. So I love the idea of having avatars and I think it's really welcome in the environment we're in. We are, we are more of a startup um, focused marketplace. And that does make us a little bit more flexible in the way we approach things. But I think in general, uh, it's been interesting to have onboarding uh, Otacon prior to the pandemic and then also going through the pandemic. Um, I feel like there are two sets of learnings there. When we first boarded, onboarded with Otacon, uh, one of my favorite parts about it is how much they they spend in educating you and your teams on how to be successful, uh, both as teams as well as someone who is mentoring someone on the spectrum. And a lot of those uh, things were really rolled down to basics. Um, and things like if if someone doesn't want to appear on screen in video, you know, assume positive intent. You know, there there's probably a reason why. I think as a, overall, as we started to grow as a team and find out and understand more about that. Not only did we we have an aha moment to say, oh, that totally makes sense, but I think uh, that creativity came out, that playfulness came out. So I think it's really welcome because I think it really levels the playing field for everybody, whether you're on the spectrum, not on the spectrum, whether your team has people or not. Um, it's a really fun way to give people that uh, that kind of personality without always having to be on screen. And then I think the pandemic really doubled down on that. I think everybody was suffering from, um, you know, video fatigue, Zoom fatigue. Uh, and I think, you know, just having already that kind of openness to different ways of uh, presenting in video conferences um, as well as in real life gave us really an opportunity to make that accessible to everybody. So it, it kind of became just part of the norm, which is what we want in our environment is just to blend everything seamlessly so there is no distinction. Well, it's great that there's so much more progress happening uh, than we would have, you know, we're, we're way in ad advance than where I thought we would have been, and, and that's wonderful. And yet, there's always still more that can be done. Uh, Dan, do you, um, you know, with your community, what are some of the biggest concerns and challenges that your community is worried about? And, and that is obviously the people that you're working with, but just you, you touch a lot of lives uh, in the work that you do. What are the challenges? In, in regard to uh, needing mentorship and, and, and companies really being able to come alongside people? You know, I think the, one of the main things is um, being approachable. Uh, you know, people are scared to approach their employer. They're scared, they're scared to approach, approach their HR department because it's it's a vulnerability thing you know you, you're coming in a vulnerable situation you know you're you're working for an employer and you need to go and speak to them about potential um uh changes in the workplace that will help you you know um reasonable adjustments 
And they're scared to do this because they are scared of being judged. And yes. this, again, comes back to what we were saying about pathological demand avoidance, right? We've spent our entire um, uh, growing from a, a kid to a teenager to an adult uh, being given demands, demands, demands that are never achievable and it knocks your confidence. So what I do is I try to kind of help and educate them into creating confidence so then they can go into a meeting with HR with full confidence, not worrying about that kind of judgmental kind of approach from their employer. I think the biggest challenge is, you know, and, and how and how the employees see it is that they they would feel more comfortable if every kind of business could understand about that disability. It's kind of like, you know, if you went back to like nineteen twenties and you were in a you know, you're a wheelchair user and you went to your boss and said, I need a ramp putting in, they it, probably slap you or something and put your cigarette out on you, yeah. right? Horrible kind of like, because it was ridiculously barbaric and it was archaic. Now, if you come back to the future here now, you wouldn't even have an office building built without a wheelchair access, right? So in terms of where we are with autism, we're back in the 1920s where people are still scared to go and speak to their boss about reasonable adjustments about their disability. And this can't carry on. So I think when you can create a, a global systematic change on more of a uh, governmental and societal level where people will be more educated in neurodivergent um, needs and and, uh, and reasonable adjustments, then the employees will be less uh, knocked from saying, okay, well, I'm not comfortable speaking to my employer. They'll just be like, oh, I need to speak to Bob in HR because I need, you know, uh, another screen putting up next to my desk so I can't see this side of me, you know, something like that. Yeah, I, I love that. That really, really makes sense. And Lee... You know, what is it like uh, in, in the areas that you work in? What, what are the challenges um, in terms of mentorship we're talking about here, you know, where, where people, you know, need that extra little bit of help? Yeah, I think not everyone has the benefit of a, a coach like me. You know, I, I feel everyone should have a, a job coach in whatever line of work that they do. I yes. mean, you know, it's it's it can be a very privileged thing to, to have. And, you know, I think... People often in, in workplaces will struggle to perhaps have that trusted confidant that can maybe sort of help answer the questions or that they can be open with about a personal issue. And often I find kind of people with, with autism will, will worry about bothering someone with like a question, whether it's like just really practical or personal, and we'll perhaps sit on it instead of just sort of maybe reaching out. And, you know, that can only increase anxiety. And as we've discussed kind of previously, can be a huge contributor towards like burnout. Um, but when, but when they know that they've got that one person to speak with, it can, can really help. And it might just involve the most simple of solutions or just being signposted or helped with things. And it can, can really address a lot of questions and concerns. And I a hundred percent agree with everything that's been said. And I'm glad it's been discussed that it is a two way thing mentorship. And that's always something that's struck with me. I mean, for us at Autocon, we believe sort of working alongside sort of our autistic consultants helps boost people's kind of understanding and awareness by giving them that, that really significant life experience. So in just instead of just relying on awareness training or, or anecdotes, yeah. and we found those that kind of work as a mentor develop really fantastic kind of relationships, improves their confidence and understanding, and also gives them an own, their own opportunity for like personal and professional development as well. And We've seen people who have worked with our consultants, for example, go on and take part or develop their own sort of neurodivergent support practices or services within their own employers. And I really believe, you know, our consultants and, and neurodivergent talent in workplaces can be such a huge catalyst for, for change within that environment. That's, that's absolutely right, uh, Lee. And, and for you, Liz, what learnings or advice would you offer to others looking to better support neurodivergent talent? Yeah, I think... 
if you're listening to this podcast, you've already made a huge leap forward. Um, just the recognition of the talent that is there and then understanding what makes them unique as well as understanding um, what are meaningful um, accommodations for someone who's on the spectrum. I think people are a little intimidated at first. Uh, when we start to break it down, they realize that they're just really great accommodations for everyone. Uh, and that definitely uh, makes it easier to adapt. And I think the biggest thing for what I've learned and what my team learned is it's okay to ask. Uh, you may not... Um, get the answer right away. This person who you're asking uh, their preference or maybe their experience, uh, they may need a moment to process that and, and find their own voice and their way to respond back. Um, but that's the quickest way to understanding is just really to ask questions. Um, so it's been really successful. And I think just that um, understanding too, that people who are on the spectrum when put in a supportive environment um, generally are very open with sharing and helping other people understand their experiences. The team grew so much from that. Uh, and I think they look back on it very fondly as not just did they acquire a new teammate who they enjoy working with, um, but they learned a lot and they felt like they really grew as people. And we also discovered people in our own environment um, who may or may not have been diagnosed as being on the spectrum and made it a very welcoming place for them as well. So it was, uh, I think, really important to just to feel comfortable asking questions. I think the only other piece of advice I, I would say is, um, at some point, you're going to say the wrong thing. It's okay. <laughs> you're going to say something that's uncomfortable. You're going to say something or you're going to ask a question that may feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, done, done with sincerity, done with the best of intent. Um, you know, when you're making that welcoming environment, it, it's okay. People, people are quick to forgive and explain and help people understand. And I think that's another thing too, is getting that over that fear of, um, am, am I saying the wrong thing? Am I interpreting something incorrectly? Um, that would be the other piece of advice is, is just don't be afraid. Um, just, just keep those communication channels open. Willard, um, we've talked, in fact, I think everybody now has talked about the fact that mentoring, we're calling it mentorship. And and I guess initially we were thinking, oh, autistic people will need mentors. But really, we're talking about translators. And translators work both ways, don't they? It's for our neurodivergent autistic people to explain their world to a neurotypical person and a neurotypical person to explain to the neurodivergent person oh this is oh this is how we work until we find some middle ground mm -hmm. we've heard i think everybody's referred to that kind of mm. middle ground space i suppose it's, it's like a, a, a recipe isn't it you know once you you get the consistency and you you mix it put it together and it you know it tastes good yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean because you've you just created a, a form of um help collaboration yeah. collaboration yeah and it's almost like a uh, um like i said before sometimes what determines who you become is what people can say and sometimes other people can help you determine who you are yeah and it's 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 like um someone saying to you i like your hairstyle you know you go mm. Like, I like your hairstyle. Thanks. I was looking at the light bouncing off it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's nice. Thank and if you. I say that to you, you, you feel good because... Yeah, I'm loving my red hair right you're now. You're loving yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And you've got to learn to 
love yourself. And learning to love yourself is is good because that brings out some of what you think's missing. I think it adds confidence. Actually, as you were writing, I wrote the word confidence before you just said that to me about my hair. And I think yeah. some of this, in terms of a collaboration, collaboration, John, demands a, a certain level of confidence from both parties, doesn't it? Otherwise, it's just a one-way street. It's one person saying, this is what we need to do. This is what I think would really work. But you have to have confidence to feel like your ideas are worth anything. Absolutely. And I think something Willard will probably say and agree with that he's, I'm, I don't think I'm wrong in saying his career-wise is in the happiest place that he's been for a long time. And at the age that he is now, he's actually making the best work of his career and intends on breaking his own world record and going ever smaller. So, <laughs> How is that even possible? <laughs> so, so uh, you know, you look at uh, Willard's, uh, and you've seen some of the sculptures before we sort of came on air. Yes. Actually, you know, some of the new work that no one has seen yet is actually surpasses what you thought was impossible. So yeah. Willard has managed to go beyond the unexplainable and impossible to a different level that I don't even have any word invented for. Yeah, there's no there is so right. There is no and and our listeners and for for Lee, Liz, and Dan, uh, we were all looking at Willard's work before we came to do the podcast today. It, it's there aren't words for it. It's inexplicable. It's incredible. There hasn't the word been invented. It's beautiful, for Willard's work yet. and it's so tiny that you can't see it with the human eye. It, it, I, I don't know how it happens. It's extraordinary. I suppose, Kerry, what, what brought this home to me is when I got invited to Buckingham Palace and I sat in front of the Queen and the Queen looked down the microscope and she said she's never seen anything so small. That's meant so much to her. That was when I gave her the wow. crown wow. on the head of the pin. Wow. You know, which is... Fortunately, she's not here, but that memory of me giving her that little crown, yeah. something so tiny... That if it fell on the floor, you'd never see it. Yeah. But now it's in Buckingham Palace. The Queen yeah. has it in her private studies. <laughs> now, King Charles will probably take over now with it, but he, he won't be able to wear it because it's too small. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it's, it made me realise that little things really do mean a lot. And if you belittle, you know, autism is something that you're belittled by. And uh, my inspiration is underestimation. Yeah, and and that's, I get inspired by that because when I was underestimated, you know, I was told that I wasn't going to be anything. Mm. But now I've got qualifications in revenge, you know, and the teachers. <laughs> <laughs> but you are, you're someone who was able to do that. Dan, that's not always possible, is it? Not everyone turns all those bad experiences around. You know, that's that's the Disney happy ending and that, that clearly has happened for you. I'm saying Disney, not in a disrespectful way, but just for some of us, that doesn't happen, does it? That That's not all, it's not always a, a good ending that you find your confidence because someone oppressed you. Sometimes it's actually the opposite. You, you end up feeling very oppressed and you do need someone to advocate for you and help you. Uh, what, what is it like with the people that you work with, Dan? Um, you know, it's it's interesting because it's it's advocating for every part of their life, really, because, you know, autism is an all-consuming neurological condition. So it's not just, you know, when I take on someone to work with me, it's not taking on somebody you know, some of these issues where they're working with, it's taken on all issues in their entire life. Yeah. So, you know, Holistic. I'd say a good, 
Yeah, absolutely. I say a good week of the month is taken up by talking to them about the problems that they have in their life. And can I suggest things, you know, so I'm advocating for them in their entire life because, and this is another thing, their entire life affects how they perform in work. And so that to me is so important. And, and I love, um, listening and, and helping and, um, and, and just really being there as as a support system as well as an advocate for, for people, because I've, you know, I've lived um, many different lifetimes in my only 36 years, which is crazy. And I'm super young still. Um, I am still young. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had many different experiences that I can definitely um, help people with. Um, and I love that. So it's, it, to me, it's, uh, it's making sure that their, their, their entire kind of like existence, mm. you know, in, in the smallest way is, is, is kind of good as well. But, um, but you're absolutely right. You know, there's so many autistic individuals who, who never really get to that fairy tale ending? Actually, there's, there's, there's a lot of sad endings, um, but you know, it all comes down to a uh, shift in in uh, in social psyche. I think that's what's going to make the biggest change. And, and sure. Dan, you are making a difference with the work that you do for that, and we we salute you for that. Lee, obviously, working with with autistic people as as a coach, what would you like to see in the future? It's it's, it's a hard one. I have such grand hopes and ambitions. I think. If I was to pick a, a theme from from this episode that I very much relate to, I think it's it's tiny changes that we can have these grand ambitions about how we want to put things into place, but it's those tiny changes that make a difference and, and a mentor can be a really important first step. I mean, it's often just that one person, that one relationship, and it can open up an entire world to people and help people navigate through it. And, you know, it's I hope that there's people out there that, you know, they don't think about, oh, we've got to put all of these huge things into place. You know, it's it's sometimes it's tiny accommodations, tiny costs, if any cost at all. You know, mentorship can be something that's that's just free and just being a good coworker and an employer. There's just so many things that we can do on a tiny level to make things better for, for people in their life. And yeah, we might not get that Disney ending, but we can continue to create a, an inclusive society for people and hopefully a place where people will feel happy and comfortable. And, you know, f- from that, we can kind of go further and, and help people on. I think, yeah, tiny changes make a make a huge difference overall. And we can all take on those tiny changes for people. Thank you, Lee. And for you, Liz, what would you like to see in the future? You know, I think the biggest thing after doing this with Autocon for about a year and a half that we realized is, uh, and, and and I got this feedback both from the consultants as well as my own teammates, is we need more people who are on the spectrum in leadership positions. Um, we'd really like to see the uh, corporations and businesses and startups recognize um, that the talent is there, the leadership ability is there. Servant leadership um, just seems to uh, come naturally whether in a welcoming environment, but transforming that. Can you transform that into um, people leadership or technology leadership or business leadership? Um, I think there's not enough uh, individuals in organizations that someone on the spectrum can see themselves and aspire to be like. So that would be my my big hope and dream is uh, that we really start to understand and make accommodations and realize these people make, you know, they can make awesome leaders too and that they don't just need to be an individual contributor. Well, thank you so much, Liz. Thanks to all my guests today, Lee Hutchison, Dan Jones, Liz Moore, Willard Wigan and John Bowden. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism in Conversation with Auticon. If you'd like to know more about the podcast, would be interested in applying for a job as an Auticon consultant, or would like further information about how Auticon can help support your business, please visit auticon.co.uk. This episode was recorded in September 2022. Recording and production was at Strathmore Studios in Clerkenwell, London. It was engineered and edited by Billy Godfrey and music was by The Lethargies. That's all from us this time. Thanks again for listening and bye for now. Thank you.